The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to take a look at the central claim and the cornerstone to Christianity. We pointed out that even outside of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is an issue for which the answer for every man, woman, and child bears eternal consequences. Since the stakes are so high, each person owes it to themselves to carefully examine and weigh the evidence before making a conclusion. We began by identifying 12 presumptive facts regarding the investigation and exploration of Jesus' resurrection. In part 1, we discussed the presumptive fact that Jesus was crucified and Jesus died. In part two, we address the fact that Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb, and that Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion, the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death, and that a large number of the disciples, both separately and together, said that they saw, touched, 
and ate together with Jesus after his death. In part two and in three, we began to see how each of Jesus' disciples was psychologically transformed after his resurrection. In this episode, we intend to ask an important question regarding these 12 presumptive facts, regarding this investigation, and the exploration of Jesus' resurrection. The question we will ask is this. What theory best fits all of the above presumptive facts? Now, from the first moment when Jesus' physical resurrection was first broadcasted to the world until now, there have been many reactions from the world to that message. As we look at those reactions historically, it is possible to compile the various explanations into 17 general theories. Here are the possible theories offered to explain the preaching of the resurrection. 1. The disciples stole Jesus' body and preached Jesus' having raised from the dead. 2. The Jewish leaders took Jesus' body. 3. The Roman authorities took Jesus' body. 4. The women went to the wrong tomb. 5. Jesus resuscitated after having swooned and came forth. 6. The disciples had hallucinations. 7. The disciples made up the whole story. They were telling lies, and they knew they were telling lies. 8. The gardener removed Jesus' body. 9. Jesus had a twin brother. 10. Jesus' body decayed before Sunday and thus disappeared. 11. Jesus was a Zen or yoga master. He learned how to simulate death, practiced it on Lazarus, and finally performed it on himself. 12. The Passover Plot 13. Joseph of Arimathea moved Jesus' body. 14. Legend 15. Spiritual Resurrection 16. Jesus' body was devoured by dogs. and 17. Jesus physically resurrected from the dead. Having articulated these 17 theories, let us examine each one to see which, if any, has the most credibility and plausibility in explaining the previously stated 12 presumptive facts regarding Jesus' resurrection. First up, we have the allegation or the theory that 1. The disciples stole Jesus' body and preached Jesus as having raised from the dead. Now, to begin with this theory, like the other 16 theories, consciously or unconsciously concedes to the truthful premise of certain facts. In this case, lodging the allegation or the theory that the disciples stole Jesus' body stipulates to the following. A. Jesus was a historical person. B. Jesus was crucified. C. Jesus died. D. Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb. And E. 
The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. If these were not the facts, then there would be little, if any, point in discussing, or not, the disciples or anyone else would have been able to steal a body which never existed to begin with. Second, it would not make logical sense otherwise, because if Jesus had not been crucified and died, there would have been no body to steal. Likewise, it would be impossible for the disciples to steal Jesus' body if they did not know where his body was. Lastly, making the allegation that the disciples or anyone else stole Jesus' body would be pretty hollow if Jesus' tomb was still occupied by his corpse. Thus, all five of these presumptive facts must exist as a factual basis for the above excuse to be lodged as a potential valid explanation. More importantly, we have a theory posed by skeptics designed ostensibly to explain or dismiss Jesus' resurrection. At the outset of examining this particular theory, the theory thus far substantiates five of the twelve presumptive facts presented. As we continue our examination of this theory, we encounter the following problems. A. This theory fails to take into account the fact that each and every one of the disciples who knew Jesus abandoned Jesus upon his arrest and were completely demoralized and afraid due to the events surrounding his arrest. It would therefore be highly improbable and illogical for anyone who was aware of Jesus' arrest, trials, severe beating, humiliation, crucifixion, death, and burial to then be motivated to steal a body and risk oneself facing the same terrible ordeal as Jesus had just encountered. B. This theory fails to address how at least two if not more of individuals would then be required to ignore their demoralization, disregard their fear of the various authorities, and somehow sneak past the guards in the dead of night who had been placed at Jesus' tomb. Having succeeded thus far, the disciples would then, as previously discussed, have had to have broken the official seal on the tomb, and rolled back the stone covering the opening which weighed about 2,000 to 4,000 pounds uphill again without waking the guards. Having accomplished this, they would then have to collect Jesus' adult body, extricate his body from the 75 to 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and carry his body with them and then walk again past the guards a second time with Jesus' body, without waking them. Finally, they would have to then dispose of Jesus' body without anyone else witnessing them. C. This theory fails to take into account the enormous psychological transformation of the disciples, including Jesus' immediate family members. Each of the disciples abandoned Jesus upon his arrest. Each was demoralized and depressed over the death of their friend whom they spent time with. It was not until after having made the claims of seeing, touching, and hearing the risen Jesus that each of them was transformed into being filled with boldness, faith, 
resoluteness, courage, tenacity, and strength. If one or more of the disciples stole Jesus' body, then how does the knowledge of such a fraudulent act give that disciple the mental fortitude and courage to fearlessly preach the resurrection and live their lives against the daily, overwhelming odds and adversity that each faced? If they stole Jesus' body, then how does that knowledge provide them with the impetus to continue abandoning all they had known, friends, family, and relationships, only for the mere hope of uncertainty of their futures, as well as the animosity of the world to follow? If two or more disciples participated in stealing Jesus' body, then what message would they provide to the remaining disciples that would then transform them? Perhaps we might imagine one or two of disciples hatching such a preposterous story. Perhaps, under the best circumstances, absent persecution, trials, imprisonment, torture, and death, they might remain steadfast to their story. Perhaps if they all stayed together in one central location, they might have the needed peer pressure and resolve to stick to their story. But here we have 11 people from different backgrounds who faced constant persecution, adversity, beatings, arrest, hunger, trials, imprisonment, torture, and death. They did not do this all together but instead suffered their respective fates at different times, in different places, and in many cases, alone, separated from one another. The question then arises, is it likely, is it plausible that if you or I were a disciple who had stolen Jesus' body and lied about Jesus' resurrection and made up everything else, that you or I would be willing to suffer all of these things, including torture and death, for a lie. I know that if I faced the prospect of torture and death over such an issue, and I could save myself from horrible pain and torture by admitting to having lied, I would gladly do so. Moreover, if I were hundreds of miles from anyone else who would know about my having broken ranks and told the truth, then what would prevent me from doing so? It's one thing to have co-conspirators standing by, waiting to patiently do something to me for uncovering their plot. Maybe, under those circumstances, I might be more afraid of my friends and co-conspirators than I am of those who are going to torture and kill me. But if no one is around, then I am at liberty to say whatever is necessary to save myself without recourse. Why do none of the disciples do this? D. Simply stealing Jesus' body would not demonstrate the logic that Jesus had risen from the dead. All it would do is to demonstrate that Jesus' tomb was empty and that his corpse was missing. Given the local common knowledge that Jesus had been beaten almost to death and had been crucified and died, people would know that Jesus was dead. 
People would also know firsthand based upon having witnessed the horrible effects of crucifixion that people who were crucified were like the proverbial wicked witch of the East and the Wizard of Oz who had a house dropped on her. They are not just merely dead. They are really most sincerely dead. In order to move people from the realm of incredulity and convince them that Jesus was alive and not just missing, one or more witnesses who were reliable would have to actually see the risen Jesus. Assuming disciples somehow wanted to and were able to transcend the various problems outlined above in point C, the fact that one or more of the disciples started making claims that Jesus had resurrected would still face the same skeptical limitations as any day. The generally accepted assumption is that people who have been dead for three days after being beaten to an inch of their life and crucified do not come back to life. If they do, they would look a horrible mess of blood and gore not a radiant, glorified, powerful, and strong appearance. In order to overcome this hurdle of skepticism, people would justifiably need more than a sole assertion by the disciples that Jesus' body was missing and one or two of the disciples had privately seen him. In the end, this sort of claim by itself would be no different from the myriad of people who have over the years claimed to see Elvis Presley long after he was known to have died. In all, when evaluating the allegation and or theory that the disciples stole Jesus' body and preached Jesus as having raised from the dead, we find that this explanation provides very little, if any, credibility which would be necessary to initiate the birth of the Christian faith. This theory would hold less potential still to maintain, much less grow, the Christian church. In conclusion, this theory is highly inadequate to explain and justify Jesus' resurrection and the phenomena of his church. Because of this theory's inconsistencies and insufficiencies, this theory fails to provide an effective explanation and is therefore logically deficient. Theory number two, the Jewish leaders took Jesus' body. Once again, this theory, like the other 16 theories, consciously or unconsciously concedes to the truthful premise of certain facts. In this case, lodging the allegation or theory that the Jewish leaders took Jesus' body stipulates to the following. A. Jesus was a historical person. B. Jesus was crucified. C. Jesus died. D. Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb and E, the tomb where Jesus was buried, was empty three days after his death. Thus again, at the outset of examining this particular theory, the theory itself substantiates five of the twelve presumptive facts presented. As we continue our examination of this theory, we encounter the following problems. 1. 
The main problem is that if the Jewish leaders took Jesus' body and they were careless enough to lose it or dispose of it so that there was no trace, then the Jews would effectively be setting the stage for someone to claim that Jesus had resurrected. It would be a ticking time bomb waiting to go off and cause great damage to the Jewish religious establishment. The Jews were no stranger to various people who had made religious and political claims against both Rome and or the Jews. Jesus had publicly claimed to be the Messiah and that he would rise again. The fact of this knowledge is recorded in Matthew chapter 27 verses 62 and 63. Quote, now, the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again, unquote. Thus, if the Jews took Jesus' body and were careless enough to lose it or discard it, they would very likely create the vacuum for the claim that Jesus had risen again. If they had been stupid enough to have done this, then surely, as soon as the disciples and others began making claims of Jesus' resurrection, the Jews would have at some point come forward and admitted to having taken Jesus' body. But nowhere other than this theory do we find any historical allusion to the Jews having taken Jesus' body. If, on the other hand, the Jews had taken Jesus' body and safely concealed it to prevent others from doing so, then why would they not simply produce Jesus' corpse the minute the disciples and others began making claims about Jesus' resurrection? 2. The second problem is that the Jews, or anyone else taking Jesus' body, dismisses and fails to take into account the claims and the transformation of the disciples and many others who claim to have seen Jesus alive again. The truth be told, the theory that the Jews took Jesus' body flies in the face of the remaining presumptive facts. A. A large number of the disciples, both separately and together, said that they saw, touched, and ate together with Jesus after his death. This is a problem because it means that either the Jews or the disciples are lying about what happened to Jesus' body. Either way, the moment one or the other lies, the opposing party would be standing ready, as already stated, to disprove the other. B. After the reappearance of Jesus, the disciples were psychologically transformed. Well, it's hard to imagine that the disciples or others were transformed simply because the Jews or someone else took Jesus' body and therefore it was missing. C. The resurrected Jesus was central to the early church's message. This would mean that the central message of the church was based upon a bold-faced lie. D. The phenomena of the resurrection was central in Jerusalem where there were still first-hand witnesses of the facts who were still alive as the movement began. This presumptive fact, combined with the previous three points above, means that the theory of the Jews having taken Jesus' body is ludicrous. 
The reason is that obviously, if there were multiple people in Jerusalem, including the disciples, claiming that they and others had seen Jesus rise from the dead, and this preaching was drawing ever-increasing crowds, then the Jews would have been exercising malpractice not to have produced Jesus' body, which they had taken, to prevent what was going on. E. The church was born and grew as a direct result of the resurrected Jesus. The previous four points would have us believe that the Jews took Jesus' body, and then the same people quietly sat by with Jesus' body, which they had taken, and said nothing as the Christian movement grew in front of their eyes, and they lost membership from their synagogues as members converted. F. Saul of Tarsus was converted from a Pharisee who actively persecuted believers to the chief proponent and apologist of Christianity. This is an example of where the theory that the Jews took Jesus' body reaches its zenith of absurdity. 1. Paul was a Jew. So if the Jews took Jesus' body and Paul was initially in charge of persecuting the church then one would expect that Paul surely knew about the Jews having taken Jesus' body. Further, he would have doubtlessly shared that information with the disciples and others as a weapon to dissuade them. Instead, Paul winds up converting to Christianity. If Paul didn't know about the Jews taking Jesus' body, then what better way for the Jews to drive a death nail in the Christian movement than to tell Paul who could then be brought back to the Jewish faith, and who could then be a spokesman against those he knew so well in the Christian ranks. In all, when evaluating the allegation and or the theory that the Jews took Jesus' body, we find that this explanation provides no motive to answer why any of the Jewish religious establishment would want to engage in an act which serves to decimate their own faith and beliefs while planting and watering the seed for another faith. Because of this theory's inconsistencies and insufficiencies, this theory fails to provide an effective explanation and is therefore logically deficient. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part 5 of this series. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in